0: Just a few seconds to get myself ready. Feel like that has been my week trying to get myself ready with the snow and the extra people in the house and more time at the house for me than normal. I'm feeling like most days I didn't know what day it was, but here we are. First Peter, we often refer to it as a book, the book of first Peter. That's how we refer to most of the books in the Bible. But First Peter is and was, first of all, first and foremost, a letter. It was a letter written from Peter to a group of Christians, kind of scattered throughout the same areas of the churches that we looked at in Revelation, scattered throughout what was then Asia Minor, what is now called Turkey. And this letter is written as a letter of encouragement. This is a, a letter of encouragement from Peter to Christians, and Christians in the first century, but to us as Christians today, it is meant to be a letter of encouragement. How many of you like going to the mailbox and looking among the junk mail and among the bills and every once in a while, it doesn't seem like as often as perhaps it used to be, but you find a letter that is written to you from someone and you open the letter and you find that it is a letter of encouragement. Letters of encouragement are always great to receive. I have in my desk a drawer of cards from many of you over the years and often I will pull them out and just read a few and I get encouragement from it. But what does that word encouragement mean? You know, often when we refer to it, we kind of Refer to being encouraged as an emotion that we experience or a feeling that we have. If we are a down, an encouraging word is kind of a pick me up. It makes us feel better. But encouragement, it is that, but it's more than that. We find, figure out the definition of encouragement by a word that is in the middle of that word. In the middle of the word encouragement, there's another word and that word is courage. Encouragement is meant to give Courage. In fact, Webster defines encouragement as to inspire with courage, spirit, or hope. An example of that is to hearten. Section, the, the second definition under that first, part B under definition one, to attempt to persuade or urge and then second definition to spur on or stimulate this is what we mean when we you when we try to encourage someone we inspire them with courage or spirit or hope we attempt to persuade them towards something to urge them or we want to stimulate them and those definitions point to exactly what this letter from first peter is It, it is a letter that he has written to encourage his readers It's a letter that he has has written to spur them on. In fact, we find the theme of this letter towards the end of it. In in chapter 5, in verse 12, we can sum up 1 Peter with this verse by saying, I have written to you briefly, Peter says, exhorting and declaring to you this, declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is where the title of our sermon series comes from, Standing firm in the grace of God. That is what this letter is meant to encourage the believers to, to urge them to stand firm, to persuade them that Jesus is, that, that in Jesus is found the true grace of God and to call them to courage, to stand firm in the midst of an increasingly hostile world. First Peter has several different themes to it, and these themes are summed up in several words that appear over and over throughout the letter. And the first theme and the most dominant theme really that we find and the most recurring word is the word suffer. Suffer. Peter is writing to people who are suffering. Fifteen times he uses a form of that word and he uses eight different Greek words to describe the suffering that his readers are going through. Now at this time, what we know from history is that there's no accounts of any widespread form of persecution, of organized persecution happening to the church in Rome. But Peter knows it's coming. Peter is writing this letter he says he's writing it from Babylon which is code uh, for Rome he's writing it from the city of Rome and in Rome Nero has just taken the throne and Peter is beginning to see what lies ahead for Christians under Nero and then under subsequent Roman empires or emperors suffering and persecution is coming Peter himself would be martyred just a few years later by this emperor Nero But as he writes, Peter can already begin to see the writing on the wall. That's why he tells them in chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised when the fiery trial begins to come to you. Why shouldn't they be surprised? Because I'm warning you, because I see it coming. It's coming. But even though they're not experiencing organized persecution right now, as Peter writes this letter, they're still experiencing varying degrees of suffering. Varying degrees of pushback. And hostility from the culture that surrounds them. First Peter 1 verse 6, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been or are being grieved by various troubles, trials. He looks at them and he says, I know right now you are experiencing a variety of trials. And throughout this letter, we see some of these trials. In verse, in chapter 2, Peter writes to servants, and that's probably really hard to read, but Peter writes to servants who are being unjustly treated by their masters. In chapter 3, Peter mentions those who are suffering for righteousness' sake, those who are being slandered. Also in chapter 3, Peter writes to wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. And while there's no record of abuse or, 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 or mistreatment that Peter refers to, There's a level of discomfort from the wives wanting to know, how can I win my husband? How can I win my spouse to Christ in the right way? There's an uncomfort there that happens because the wife has become a Christian or because the spouse has become a Christian. In chapter 4, Peter writes that... er, In chapter 4, we see that there are those who have been saved out of a pagan lifestyle. And now they go to hanging around with their former friends, and their former friends begin to mock them and malign them because they don't join them in the, the things that they used to join them in. They don't participate in the things that they once participated in. And they're, they're mocked and they're maligned and they're made fun of. Varying levels of suffering coming from various, various sources. And no doubt sufferings and sources that we can identify in our own lives to some degree. But Peter writes to these Christians, and he writes to encourage them, and he writes to them to hold out for the hope of glory. Those are the other two words and two themes that are found in this letter. First, the theme of glory. There is a glory coming, Peter says. Peter has an eschatological vision that he carries throughout this letter that he he calls us to look to in order to stand firm in our faith. In chapter 1, after the verse that we just read in verse 6 about being grieved by various trials, he writes that the tested genuineness of of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is how you can endure this variety of troubles that are coming your way because you are fixed on the praise and the glory and the honor that is coming when Jesus returns. Chapter five, he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. He says you're suffering now, but there there is a glory coming. There is a glory coming if you just stand firm. Suffering has an expiration date, so hold fast. And it's because of this coming glory that perhaps the dominant theme, although maybe not the most frequent theme referred to, but the, the aura of the letter, the atmosphere of this letter is the atmosphere of hope. Hope in the midst of suffering and hope because there is a glory coming. If there's any word that is attached to Peter more than any other, it's this word, hope. Peter is known as the apostle of hope. John is referred to as the apostle of love. Paul is referred to the apostle as the apostle of faith. But Peter is the apostle of hope. And he writes this letter to give this letter to give his readers hope. It's where we get our name, living hope from, in verse three of chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This book radiates. With hope and not a hope so, but a sure and a certain hope, not an earthly hope that is not sure if it's going to happen or not, but this is a certain and a confident hope that we can have because it's found in the risen and ascended and returning Christ. And it's this hope that gives us courage to stand firm in the midst of the sufferings of this world. It's this hope that gives us courage to live obediently to Christ in the midst of a hostile environment. It's this hope that gives us the boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus no matter what opposition comes our way. But how do we live in this hope? How do we stand firm as we await the coming glory? Well, in these introductory verses, there are four ways that we can live with hope in the midst of suffering. Four ways that Peter begins his letter kind of as an introduction and a summary of the whole book. Four ways for us to live in this world holding on to hope. It says first we need to remember where we live. And we'll go through these. So you don't have to write them all down now. But first we need to remember where we live. Second we need to remember where we're headed. Third, we need to remember whose we are. And fourth, we must not forget why we're here. Now I've given you the points and I haven't even read the verses. So let me read the verses. The title of this sermon is Living as Strangers in a Strange Land. Verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And as a prayer, just may grace and peace be multiplied to us as we study God's Word. Well, I've given you four points But now let's begin to work through them. And the first point of how do we live as strangers in a strange land? Well, we need to remember that we're living in a strange land. We need to remember where we live. And we need to remember our relationship to where we live. And Peter sums up our relationship to this world and to the places where we dwell as that of being an exile. An exile. That's the word the ESV and the NIV uses. Other translations use different words like uh, foreigners. Or a temporary residence. The New American Standard uses the word aliens. Or the word I've used in this morning's sermon is from the King James that uses the word strangers. We need to remember, Peter says, first and foremost, that we are strangers living in a strange land. The Greek word that is used here and translated in various ways as exiles, it it means a person who comes from a foreign country into a city or a land to reside there with the natives temporarily. A person who is coming from a foreign country to live in a place with those of that place, but to live there temporarily. Using this definition, the English word that comes to my mind as we think about those different definitions is the the word alien, which is not referring to someone from outer space, but someone from another country who is temporarily dwelling in A different country. Someone who is from one country but is making a temporary living in a different country. Another word we could use is the word sojourner. It it captures this idea of the temporariness that this word implies. The ESV uses that word sojourner, sojourner in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of, of the flesh. The N a New American Standard says, I urge you as aliens. This is to be our relationship with the world that we live in during our time on earth. We are not permanent residents, but we are temporary. We, we, are, not, we are not permanent citizens, but we are temporary residents. Webster defines alien as the, someone who belongs to another person and another place. That's a great definition for us to have in our minds as we think about who we are and where we belong. We are those who belong to another person and to another place. We used to sing a song, and maybe we still sing it in certain settings, this world is not our home. Instead, we're just a passing through. Or as we sang this morning, we're almost home, which implies that we're not home yet. We're not there. We are not in our home. We are in this world as aliens. We're in this world as foreigners. We are in this world as strangers in a strange land. Maybe you've lived somewhere as a foreigner before. You, You dwelt there however long in a place that was not your home. And while you may enjoy things about the culture that you're in and appreciate things that are different about it, there's always this reminder it's not home. Things are done differently. Language is differently, not in just the words that we use, but the way that we communicate and put those words together. Customs are different. Celebrations are different. Food is different. And as much as you might assimilate to that culture, there's always this constant reminder, this is not home. And there are some ways in which you just can't assimilate. You know, sometimes as Americans, we don't understand that very well. We expect everyone to just adapt to us and our way of life. And perhaps that's why we as American Christians don't understand this idea of us as aliens in this world very well. Because we are too comfortable as Americans. We've adapted too much to our culture. We must always remember, as the psalmist says, I am a stranger on earth. This is who we are. We are strangers on earth. Now this does not mean that we have to try to be strange. I know some Christians are really good at that. We don't have to try to be strange. However, it does mean that there are some things that the world should fit, look at us and think, man, they are some strange people. And the way we view our, and the way they view our customs and our culture, There are things that should be different about us and about how we interact. There are things that as the world looks to us as Christians, how we live, how we talk, what and how we celebrate. There are things that should seem foreign to them. There are things that should seem just a little bit strange. And Peter is using this word to remind his readers and to remind us but that is normal. Don't expect to fit in. Don't expect to be completely accepted. Don't be, don't be surprised by the strange looks and adverse reactions. You are different. You are a stranger here on earth. You are a citizen of another place. You belong to another world. In an early anonymous Christian work, a, a work entitled Epistle to Diognetus." Diagnetus, the anonymous author, writes this. Christians reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens, but put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home, and every home is a foreign land. They find themselves in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They spend their days on earth, but they hold a citizenship in heaven. Is this how you view your life? I love that one line. Every foreign land is their home, home and every home is a foreign land. This is, this is why missionaries can go to, to places that are so different from them and, and live as Christians because they are not attached to any particular home. Every land is a foreign land and every foreign land is a home where the gospel can take root. Again, is this how you live your life? Do you ever feel like a foreigner? Those P- those Peter writes to are feeling it. They feel like exiles. They feel like exiles, some of them in their homes. Some of them they feel like exiles in their workplaces. Others feel like exiles in their neighborhoods. Exiles in their families. Everywhere they went, they were different because they were followers of Jesus. And Peter says, yes, you are different. Remember where you are living. Not only remember where you're living, but remember where you're going. How do we live the Christian life as strangers in the strange land? We live always remembering where we are going. In first Peter, in verse one of first Peter one, Peter uses three terms to describe his readers. And each of these terms is loaded with significance. In the ESV, the words are elect, exiles, and then of the dispersion. And these terms are loaded not simply because of what they mean, not simply the definitions of them, but because of what they point to. And what they point to is the way that Jews are described in the Old Testament. Each of these words is an identity marker we find in the Old Testament of God's people. They are the elect. They are God's chosen ones. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six says, for you are a holy, a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples are who are on the face of the earth. The Lord has chosen you. Psalm 135 verse four, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself and he has chosen Israel as his own possession. The Jews were God's chosen people. But now Peter says to his readers, the church, you are God's chosen people. Much of Israel's existence was spent in exile. Sometimes they were exiled because of their sins. Sometimes they were exiled to Assyria and Babylon because of their disobedience. But sometimes they just lived as exiles and lived as foreigners. Like in Egypt where they went and lived in order to find provision during the famine. Or in the years of their wandering in the wilderness, they had no home. They were sojourners on earth. There were times when there was no physical nation of Israel and the Jews lived as aliens and foreigners in other nations. Israel spent much of its existence as aliens. And this morning I wanted to put a verse up here to show that from the Old Testament. I just searched exiles in the Old Testament. I came up with so many answers. I just said, it's everywhere. Over and over and over again, Israel is referred to Ex, as exiles. But not only are they elect exiles, Peter also uses this word dispersion, or the NIV uses the word scatter. That's what dispersion means. You think of the English word disperse, it means to scatter. But the Greek word that is used here, that is behind whatever translation we put into English, the word is a technical term, and the word is diaspora, the diaspora which is a word that was used to describe the Jews dispersed or scattered away from Palestine and among the nations. That's why the ESV not only uses the word dispersion, but it capitalizes it. It's not only that they are dispersed, but they are part of the dispersion. Part of the people of God who are scattered throughout the world. In his introduction to his letter, James uses the same word says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Similar introductions, however, a very big difference between the letters. James is written to Jews. James is written to those who are part of the twelve tribes and are part of the dispersion. Peter, however, is written mainly to Gentiles. Later on in chapter 1, we read Peter writing of them. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Both of these point us to the main audience that Peter has in mind, and that is of Gentiles. But yet Peter uses language that connects them to the people of God. They are God's chosen people, they are God's exiled people, and they are God's scattered people in the dispersion. And the promise made in the Old Testament to those people, to the exiles, to the elect, to the scattered, is that one day they would be gathered. One day they would not be in exile, but would be at home. One day they would go home. And wherever the Jews were in the place of their exile, their hearts and their eyes were always geared towards home. Commentator William Barclay says that wherever the Jew, the exiled Jew settled, his eyes were always towards Jerusalem. In foreign countries, his synagogues were, were so built that when the worshiper entered, he was facing towards Jerusalem. And however useful a citizen of his adopted country, a Jew was, his greatest loyalty was to Jerusalem. His eyes and his heart were always towards home. Peter says, so should ours. We're told in Colossians that our eyes are always to be fixed towards the heavenly new Jerusalem. Paul, writing, says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died to the things of this earth. To the citizenships of this earth, to the to the belonging to this earth, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our minds are to be set towards home. We must never forget that we have no lasting city here, but we are seeking the city that is to come. And and if you and I'm not going to sing the song, but you know the 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 ruined gospel song that anyway, looking for a city. If you want to get a good laugh. And have something bad stuck in your head for a long time. Not the not the good version sang by the gospel singers, but anyway. But it's true. We have no lasting city. Instead, we are looking for a heavenly city. And we are looking for the king and the savior of that heavenly city. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we are waiting for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There used to be a cliche, and maybe it's still used, I haven't heard it as much lately, but describing someone as so heavenly minded that there are no earthly good. Peter tells us that's all wrong. In fact, throughout this letter, he's gonna tell us that we should be a, we should be, we we should do a lot of earthly good. We are not citizens of, of this world, but yet as we are temporary residents here, we should be working for the good and the godly in this world. We're to be busy during our time on earth, not just kicked back in a rocking chair waiting. But Peter says the only way you can do that is if your mind is filled with the things of heaven. Never forget where you're going. Psalm 84, the psalmist says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and I love this phrase, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. What a beautiful picture. Is your heart a highway to Zion? Where your thoughts, your affections, your longings, your desires, your priorities, your whatever you want to put, your disciplines, your the way you spend your time, is there a highway to heaven in your heart? A highway to home? If so, you will live differently while you're traveling there here on earth. If you remember where you're going, you'll travel differently on your way there. Maybe you've been far from home for a period of time. You went to college or you spent some time away, but you got in your car and you begin to travel home and you begin to see familiar markers. You were reminded, I'm going home. Peter reminds us, we are headed home. Sufferings may come, but you're headed home trials may meet you but you are headed home difficulties will face you but don't forget you're headed home live as an alien here reminding us that we belong somewhere else remember where you're headed also as we are headed there remember whose you are remember whose you are Peter describes his readers as those who are exiles or aliens, and then he describes them as those who are scattered. We already saw that scattered throughout the world, but then he uses another description and he describes them as the elect, describes them as The chosen ones, the New Living Translation says. And I like how the rest of the verse reads in the New Living Translation. It says God's chosen people. He's writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I love the way that words it because it almost puts the end of that as an afterthought. You are God's chosen people who just happen to be living in these places. Here's where you're dwelling, but never forget who you are. Never forget your identity and never forget whose you are. You are God's chosen ones. You're God's elect. Now some of us hear that word elect or chosen and we're ready for an argument. We're ready for a debate. And Floyd's not here this morning, but me and him have debated many times, uh, standing out in the cold after a Tuesday morning Bible study on this word. And if we were reading Paul and Romans and came across the word elect or chosen or predestination, or if we were in a Sunday school class debating Calvinism and Arminianism or discussing the doctrine of election, it would be a great time to stop and have that debate. But that's not where we are. We are at the beginning of a letter written to suffering Christians, encouraging them to stand firm in their faith. And as an encouragement, Peter says, I know you feel like exiles. I know you've been abandoned by what seems like everyone. I know that no one chooses you and no one invites you to the neighborhood barbecues anymore. I know that and I know it hurts. But never forget, God has chosen you. You are a part of His chosen people. Never forget whose you are. Let that be the defining mark about you. You are His. In fact, in verse 2, all three members of the triune God are mentioned, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. Peter wants to remind his hearers that though they may live in a foreign land, they are surrounded by their loving triune God. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you have in front of you, uh, you may recognize that the ordering of the phrases in verses 1 and 2 is different than what's been on the screen in the ESV. If you have the NIV, the language is that the three phrases of verse 2 actually modify the word chosen. The NIV reads, "...you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, through the sanctification of the Spirit." To be obedient to Christ. All of those modify this word chosen. How have you been chosen? According to the Father. Why, how have you been chosen? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. How have you been chosen? To be obedient to Christ. Other translations read that as well. But the ESV puts it a little different because they, they focus more on the original language and how it's arranged in the original language. And it says it reads like this, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. Now that might not seem obvious, but when you read it like that, what those three phrases in verse 2 are modifying is not simply the word chosen, but it's modifying all that is is in verse 1. It's modifying those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in these places. Meaning that what is happening in their lives, their their exile and their election, their dispersion, is not unnoticed by God. Their suffering is not unnoticed. In fact, it's according to the foreknowledge of God. Which doesn't mean that God simply looked down a long quarter of time and saw what would happen and then planned accordingly. It refers to a planning ahead of time. All of it is by God's plan. All of it is in the sanctification of the Spirit. And all of it is for obedience to Jesus. Now there's a big debate over which of those translations is right. But I love the ESV, so I'm going to go with the ESV this morning. I love that God foreknew. He knew way ahead of time what you were going to be going through. And He has a purpose for it. In his commentary, Wayne Grudem writes that this implies that their status as sojourners and their privileges as God's chosen people, even in their hostile environment, in Pontius, Galatians, etc., they were all known by God before the world began. And all came about in accordance with his foreknowledge. And thus we may conclude, all were in accordance with his fatherly love for his own people. We don't like that word foreknowledge, but... Isn't it great when it's attached to God as Father? The greatest Father, the greatest example of fatherly love we will ever know. Foreknew us and planned ahead for us. What a comfort this would bring to Peter's readers and what a comfort it should bring to us as well. Last week we sang about this comfort when we said that all our ways are known to God. We said no trial has come that is beyond His hand. No step that we walk is beyond his plan. And although the path is dark outside our view, all of our ways are known to him. So we sang as a prayer the bridge. Because of this, open up our eyes so we can see that you have made these ways for me. And open up my eyes so I can see that you, my God, are walking with me. Peter is writing to open up our eyes to see that nothing comes into our lives outside of the foreknowledge of God.
1: And what he allows
0: into our lives, he allows as a loving and good God and Father. And he allows it so that it might sanctify us, which means it might make us holy, that it might purify us. Suffering, though painful, Peter says in just a few verses, it produces something in you. I think Sunday school talked about that. Suffering does something in us. It sanctifies us. It purifies us. It makes us holy. As a father, I hate to see my kids going through difficult things. And at times I just want to fix it and I want to remove the difficulty and remove the struggle. And sometimes I'm I'm tempted to just jump in and do it for them. But my kids will never grow that way. My kids will never mature. They'll they'll never learn the things they need to learn in order to survive and thrive in this world. And so it is with spiritual things as well. There are things that we must go through. There are things that we must endure that we don't understand why now that are necessary for us to grow and mature as Christians. Wayne Grudem again says, Peter is saying that his readers' whole existence as chosen sojourners of the dispersion is being lived in the realm of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. I love this phrase. The unseen, unheard activity of God's Holy Spirit surrounds them like a spiritual atmosphere in which they live and breathe, turning every circumstance, every sorrow, every hardship into a tool for His patient, sanctifying work. You don't have to take Wayne Grudem's word for it. You can take God's. Who says, And we know that for those who love God... All things are working according to His purpose. As you live as aliens and sojourners in this world, do not forget whose you are. Do not forget whose you are. And lastly, don't forget why you're here. Remember why you are here. Remember why you are here as aliens. Remember why you are here as God's elect exiles scattered throughout this world. Remember why you're here. The last verse, phrase of verse 2 tells us why we're here. We are here for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Remember Jesus' last words to Peter and the rest of the disciples as He, right before He ascended into heaven, He says, You will be, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth in that day would have been Turkey, would have been Asia Minor, the the outer remnants of the Roman Empire. And Peter says, don't forget why you're here. You are here to bear witness to Jesus. You have been scattered to these places for obedience to Him. When suffering seeks to throw you off track, remember why you're here. You are not here to live a pain-free, suffering-free life of ease. But you are here on a mission. You are here set apart for God for a purpose. You are here as a servant and an ambassador of Jesus. One of the first books I read this year was a book by Mark Batterson called Do It for a Day. And I love this quote that I'm kind of pulling out of context. But it says, quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Quit living as if the purpose of your life is simply to arrive safely at death. Many of us spend most of our days living like that. And if we live like that, what happens when suffering comes our way? It's viewed as a surprise. It's it's viewed as an unexpected intrusion. It's, It's viewed as something that needs to be gotten rid of as quickly as possible. And in this letter, Peter never advocates for suffering. Or for us to seek suffering. He never lifts up suffering in that way. But he says we should not be surprised by it. Because we know why we're here. We know where we are. We're on earth. A place that wants to keep us for obedience to Christ. And we dwell in a body that has passions and desires and longings that are contrary to obedience to Christ. And to say no to those passions brings a level of suffering into your life. You're surrounded by people who are not living in obedience to Christ. And that will bring scorn and mockery. And you are living in a world that is opposed to obedience to Christ. And that will bring opposition. And above all, we have a spiritual enemy that wants to destroy your obedience to Christ. And that will bring spiritual warfare. Do not forget why you're here. You're not here... You're not here for a sightseeing tour. We're not here this temporary, short time we have on earth. We're not here on vacation. Although God has blessed us with so many things in this temporal, earthly life and we celebrate those things and long for those things and look for those things and work for those things, we never forget that we are here on a mission. We are here for the purpose of obedience to Christ. So suffering... While it is painful, it is short. And it should not sway us or surprise us. And we must, through it all, stand firm. Stand firm remembering that God has promised to multiply grace and peace to us. He hasn't left us to do this on our own. In fact, that last phrase of verse 2, sprinkling with His blood implies that we're going to mess up in our obedience. We're going to fall and we're going to fail. And that's why Jesus has shed His blood for forgiveness for our sins. But He has poured out His Spirit so that we can stand firm in the grace of God, in the hope of glory, in the midst of suffering. suffering. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us the strength and that you would give us the resolve and that you would give us the endurance that we need to stand firm in the grace that you have so greatly poured out to us. God, we recognize that many of us, we need courage because we lack it. We need strength because, again, we lack it. We need you. So, Father, would you give us this strength? May this letter of 1 Peter be a source of strength for us. Jesus, when you were on earth and you were in the upper room with Peter, and Peter said, everybody may fall away, but I won't. You looked at Peter and said, Peter, you are going to fall away. But Peter, you will one day turn. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. May this letter be a way of us receiving that strength to endure, and to live obediently as your children in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let me invite you to stand, and let me simply send you out with the benediction of that introduction. May you go, having the grace and the peace of God multiplied to you. Go in grace and peace, you are dismissed.